The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, it's amazing to me the power of the imagery of the Christmas season. If I were to ask you the ideas and the sentiments that fill our songs and our, and our iconography and our decorations, what are, what are some of the things that would come to mind for you? I think you would think of words like joy, hope, and peace, plastered vertically on a piece of wood all over Costco or Target or whatever else. You would think of things like jubilation and good tidings. It's like, when do we ever use the word jubilation except for around Christmas time? There's choirs and bells and angels and trumpets. We, we sing that all is merry and bright. We think of all the batteries that are required during this season and all of the extension cords. Goodness, the extension cords. We think of giving gifts, Bob Cratchit getting a roast turkey. There's fires and feasts, there's warmth, there's charity, there's family, there's Christmas sweaters, which all of you have commented on this morning. The Christmas sweater that I'm rocking. It looks great on me, if I might say so myself. But it's hard to think of any more fundamentally Christmas ideas than light and love. Light and love. We recognize that something has happened at Christmas. It's as if a new day has dawned. A light has pierced the darkness. A light that is too potent, too powerful for the darkness to overwhelm. We think of a love that has appeared, that covers a multitude of sin and undoes all wrong. And in the small letter of 1 John, John shows us that the origin of all light and all love is God himself. Now, 1 John is named after the Apostle John. It's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. If you spend any time in any of those books, there are so many similarities. And there's so many motifs and images and word pictures that he uses across those books. And 1 John, unlike a lot of the others that, uh, other letters that are written in the New Testament, isn't quite a letter. It's almost a, a poetic sermon delivered via mail. At the time of writing, John is an old man. He's nearing the time of his death. And he has this warm, almost grandfatherly tone that he wants his readers to receive. And he, what he says in the book is that he wants his readers to experience the light and love of God, to experience joy and holiness and assurance and confidence in God himself. Now, John, as, as we studied the letter over the course of Advent, we're, we're going to be looking at a, a chunk of the letter each Sunday as we go through the, the, the next four weeks. John writes a little bit like spaghetti. Um, when I was in college, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, and when I was in college, I took a Greek class. And what we did over the course of the semester was slowly translate the book of John, which is a, first John, rather, which is great because there's like six different Greek words that basically make up the book of first John. But it's sort of all over the place. Something our professor pointed out is it's not linear like Paul. It's not kind of building an argument in the same way that Paul is. But that doesn't mean it's nonsense or that John's ideas don't build off of each other. Rather, John kind of circles and returns to a handful of ideas again and again throughout the letter, which, as a spaghetti-brained kind of person, I totally appreciate seeing that even John had his writing make the cut into the scriptures. Now, there's three ideas, I think, that John returns to again and again, and we'll, we'll see this consistently throughout the series, and it's on the front of your sermon notes section on the bulletin. Just real briefly, three ideas that we'll see again and again in the book of 1 John. The first idea is this, that God is a God of light and love. God is light and love. At two crucial junctures, he states that God isn't just filled with these things, that God is these things. God is light, and God is 
is love in chapter 2 and chapter 4. God is radiance. He is goodness. He is brightness. Like the sun, he, he chases away the dark and gives life and warmth to his people. God is love. He is a God who has loved, who is loving, and who will love forever. So the first idea is that God is light and love. The second is that Jesus' incarnation is like this big, unmistakable neon sign of God's brightness and loveliness. Jesus is the clear demonstration of God's light and love. Jesus is the clear demonstration of God's light and love. Now, one important idea in 1 John is that Christmas morning, the, the literal birth of Jesus, the baby Jesus, God in flesh, is an essential aspect of our faith. Uh, so, uh, commentators aren't exactly sure who, who John was combating as he was combating false teaching, but based on some of the content of John's letter, it seems like he's combating these folks which are called the Gnostics. They essentially taught that spirit was good and things like skin and bone and flesh were bad. And so they thought that a God in flesh was, it was unseemly and scandalous to talk in, in such ways. So they tried to remove essentially these rough edges from the faith. But John says, no, this is actually the glory of our faith. That God who is spirit and eternal put on skin and bone and flesh and blood and he came to share all that he possessed with us. Jesus is the clear demonstration of God's light and love. And then finally, is that God's people, those who are called into fellowship and life with God, of, uh, the God of light and love, are therefore to be a people of light and love. God's people are to be a people of light and love. If God is light, we must walk in the light, John will tell us. If God is love, we must therefore be a people of love, he'll say. We'll return to that in just a second. Now today, we're going to be in 1 John 1, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. It's three paragraphs in the ESV, and so we're going, to, we're going to read these three paragraphs, and there's going to be three exhortations for us that come from these scriptures. We'll start in this incredible opening paragraph here in 1 John, verse 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, this letter actually opens a lot like John's gospel. How does John 1, 1 go? How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word. And John's gospel opens a lot like Genesis does. How does Genesis 1, 1 go? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, we have heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. The word of John's gospel, the divine word who is the Son, takes on flesh and dwells among us, John says in his gospel. And he says here that we have seen, heard, and touched him. Now, John was an apostle, which means that he was one of the, one of the few that individually, uh, that, that, that was personally commissioned by Jesus and saw and experienced and heard Jesus in the flesh, in actuality, firsthand. John, it's amazing to me that John can write these things about somebody that he, he literally saw and ate dinner with, a man that he interacted with, a man who he literally rubbed shoulders with. John is in such proximity to Jesus and yet can write these things just a few decades after his experience of Jesus. That which was from the beginning, the divine word, we have heard, we have seen with our eyeballs, and we have touched with our hands, elbows, shoulders, fingers. He is the word of life, which is from the beginning. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He says the life was made manifest. We're, we're eyewitnesses to this, and we testify and proclaim to you this incredible thing that's taking place. 
It's interesting that he says that the life was made manifest to us. One commentator said that this is, uh, the, the way that John says this, he's, he's wanting to sort of emphasize that this is revelatory in nature. In other words, Jesus' coming tells us something. It has something to say about who God is. In fact, what Jesus tells Philip, when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, you, you've, how long have you been with me? And, and you see me, you've got to understand that if you see me, you see the Father. Because the Son and his coming makes manifest the fullness of who God is. John, again, reiterates that what he's testifying and proclaiming to you isn't secondhand information. We have seen and touched and experienced ourselves the things that have taken place. And again, it's worth remembering the Gnostics who taught that spirit was good and skin was bad. John is like, don't buy that. The word was made flesh. We saw him and we proclaimed that story to you. Which is probably helpful for us to, to be reacquainted with the, with the lunacy and, and the kind of the bonkers nature of the Christmas story. That God literally became a human. The word of life, by whom and for whom and through whom are all things, became audible, visible, tangible, tactile, palpable, smellable. He became material. God took on flesh. It's wild. And John is writing as an eyewitness, one who saw, touched, and heard the word of life made flesh. It's worth considering. I mean, maybe we've done the Christmas thing a million times at this point. I guess probably, probably not a million. Maybe, maybe we've done it a lot of times up to this point. It's incredible that at the heart of the, the Christian gospel is the announcement that God became one of us. The Son took on flesh. Maybe you're not a Christian, and maybe you, you hear that. And wh- what we want you to hear loud and clear is that we believe literally, in the literal sense of the word literally, that God became man. And this is the gospel message that we proclaim, that, that Jesus is no mere man, that he is the God-man, the word of life made manifest. But John also makes this really Subtle comment in verse 2 that I want to pursue for just a second. So y'all just, y'all hang with me for a second. Let's work through this. Let's look at verse 2 again. The life he calls Jesus, simply the life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. The eternal life. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. All right, now when we hear the phrase eternal life, especially when we, we hear it coming from John, where do, where do our minds, if we were raised in church, where do our minds automatically go to? For me, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. Eternal life is something that w- typically we think about, something we're given, and it's a life that extends forever that way after we die. But what is John saying here? John is describing the life of the son as the eternal life, a life which he tells us was with the father. He's saying that the Son is eternal and that there's, if we can say it this way, there's an eternal withness, withness between the Father and the Son. That the Son has always been and that the Son will always be and that the Son has always been and will always be with the Father. A couple of weeks ago in this very room, uh, the, the men, uh, many of the men of Ridgewood enjoyed biscuits and theology together over the course of, of several Wednesday mornings. Um, it, we talked about as we were working through some different theological topics, we worked through the doctrine of the Trinity together. And we asked this in that, in that session. Maybe you've never considered this. What was God doing before he created everything? Have you ever thought about that? What was God up to prior to the foundations of the world? 
Like before Pluto and Mars and Earth and everything else, before any of those things were things, what was God doing? Well, we actually get some insight into that here. It says that the life is the eternal life which has been with the Father, well, eternally. Father, Son, Spirit have always existed. The Father has always been the Father and the Son has always been the Son. And what does a Father do with a Son and a Son do with a Father? Well, they love. They love. And so what was God doing before everything, before Genesis 1? This passage speaks to that. It tells us that he was loving. That the Father and the Son were dwelling in the happy land of the Trinity, full of delight and joy and love and happiness and light and everything else, good and beautiful together. The Father enjoying the Son, the Son enjoying the Father forever. Forever existing in a kind of love and blessedness, eternally that way and eternally that way. And John tells us that this is the one who was made manifest in Jesus. This is the one who Jesus opens up or unveils or exegetes for us. Jesus reveals God to us fully and he shows us that God is a God of love forever. But it gets better. Watch this, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. He says, we proclaim the coming of the eternal son that you can have fellowship with the saints and you can enjoy the potlucks and you can enjoy the Christmas carols and we can enjoy being together as God's people. But watch. And indeed, our fellowship isn't just between one another. Our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Wait a second. Where have we seen with before? The eternal withness between father and son. All right, so listen to this. John says, we proclaim the coming of the eternal son so that you can have fellowship with us. Oh, and by the way, so that you can have fellowship with the father and son. The eternal fellowship that the father and son have enjoyed forever. He has come to you so you can have access to that. When we talk about relationship with God, Christian, when we talk about relationship with God, this is not flimsy, feely, emotive language. This is gloriously true and full and potent and full of life and joy. It's it's a life and joy that bursts into our world for our sake and God's glory. As the Son of Man, the Son of God becomes man to make sons of men sons of God. To welcome us into the fellowship that the Father and the Son have had forever. That's what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, our Father. He gives us the password. And then I love verse 4. John writes, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's such an interesting idea to me, our joy being complete. Let, Let me ask you this. What sort of things do you complete? You watch a YouTube video about how to, I don't know, update the tile in your bathroom. You spend a weekend, maybe two weekends maybe six months, eventually that thing's completed, right? You can check it off the list. You got to read a book for school, you, you read, choke it down, and bam, bada boom, good reads, complete, right? You clean out the garage or you put up the Christmas tree, that thing, check, that thing's complete. But joy being complete? When was the last time that you said that your, your, your joydometer was full? When you said no thanks to seconds on joy, when have you ever said, no thanks, I'm full. Too much joy, my joy is complete. I've hit my limit. Joy made complete, we say, there is absolutely no way that joy can be made complete. 
One of my favorite things in the world is community group. I love getting to be with the guys that we get to spend time with. And earlier this year, the guys in my community group read through Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And if you, if you know me, you know that C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, he makes the argument, he says, if we're thirsty, that thirst implies the existence of water, right? He says, if we're hungry, that hunger implies the existence of food. He even says, if a duck has an instinct to swim in a lake, that implies the existence of lakes, right? He says, so if we have this ache for joy that's never quite filled up, if it's, if it's never quite able to get totally scratched by things in this world, doesn't that imply the existence of something that can satisfy that joy? The existence of something that can complete our joy. And he presses further. If that joy isn't satisfied in this world, doesn't that seem to suggest that there's an answer from another world? We say, sure, there's spurts of goodness and joy now and again, but joy being made full we say, no, our capacity is tragically far too big for that. Our appetite for joy is so much higher than anything we've experienced. We've got to be consigned to a sort of forever letdown. Or we were built, from joy from an, built for joy from another world, and that joy has come to us in Christ. What if our joy could be made complete, that something could hit that spot in our soul, that there was a kind of fullness of joy available to us? What if an eternally happy God wanted to share his eternal joy and fellowship with you? That would be good news. And John says, that is the message that we proclaim to you, that the Son has come to unveil the Father. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched, we proclaim to you that this has happened in Jesus. So that your joy and my joy could be complete. And here's the first exhortation from John's opening paragraph for us. It's simply this. Embrace the joy of fellowship with the Father, Son, and His people. It's on the back of your notes, in the, that sermon notes page. Embrace the joy of fellowship with the Father, the Son, and His people. Have you ever considered that joy is the thing that's being held out to us in the story of the gospel, and the Christian life, that the invitation is to joy? Maybe for you it's only ever been drudgery. Maybe you're not a Christian and all you can think is blah, just a huge meh completely uninterested. Maybe for you, when you hear words of church and gospel in the Christian life, it just, it just reminds you of a nagging grandmother or a nagging mom that just always wanted you to be in church. Or maybe when you hear about a father, all that sounds like to you is just harshness and distance and just, just awful, this harsh man in the sky. But I think the reason that we love Christmas and the imagery and the iconography and the joy of the season is that it gives us a glimpse into the reality of things. That the Father so loved that he sent his Son, and his Son makes manifest. He, he reveals the light and love of the Father. He came to make his joy yours. So let's embrace the fellowship, the, the joy of the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and his people. Here's an invitation just over the next several weeks. What if you just tried these things in faith? Shoot, let's just agree to a decade. Let's just, let's just say, let's agree for the next decade that we're going to try these things in faith. We're, we're going to trust that when, when, when we're told that prayer is about connecting our hearts with a God that we can't yet see and that it's for our joy, what if we prayed in faith that those things were for our joy? And just, just give it a go for a decade and, and see what we find. Or, or what if we believe that we're, we're to study the scriptures for our joy, that there is joy to be found there? And we said, let's just give it a, give it a go for a decade and just see what we find there. Or, or belonging to a church... Like locking arms with the fellowship of believers. 
What if we, what if we believed that this was for our joy and we, and we locked in for a decade and just, just kind of evaluated after the fact and said, what did the Lord have for us there? The first takeaway is to embrace the joy of fellowship with the Father, Son, and His people. Let's keep going. Verse 5. John says, this is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. A couple of Sundays ago, I mentioned that one of my favorite habits is to test drive some of the sermon material with my children at the dinner table. So I shared a story about Ruthie a couple of weeks ago about singing and she made a Build-A-Bear reference and it was brilliant. And I decided I'm going to try that again. I'm going to read through some of 1 John a couple of days ago and just see kind of what material my kids deliver for me. And they, they definitely delivered. Now, uh, when I asked them, I, I read through this verse, 1 John 1, verse 5. I said, what do you think of when you think about light? And my two older sons both jumped up. And it's, it's amazing, by the way, how kids just into it, the, the images that the scripture has. We don't have to think too hard about it. The, ki- the kids just kind of understand. It should be like children in a lot of ways. But they both jumped up and they said, you know, with light you can see where you're going and it's warm. And Nate said, I think about laying in the grass and just enjoying the warmth of the sun. And we were like, okay, Walt Whitman, <laughs> you know, thanks for that. But then we asked, what do you think of when you think about the dark? And Ruthie, our four-year-old little girl, immediately got up on her knees and put both hands on the tables. And she said this, there are caves. And in caves, there are bears. Yeah. And then she paused for just a second and said, bears are scary. And then she paused for another second longer and she said, but bears don't know where we live. <laughs> just like that. Like, yes, that's exactly right. We got a good laugh out of that. We just know that darkness means evil. It's the place where bacteria and fungus and malevolence fester and breed and hide and hibernate like bears. Darkness is the place where the bad guys lurk. It's the unknown. It's the Death Star. It's Mordor. It's danger. It's, it's why we hate daylight saving times. We go to lunch, we blink, and then it's pitch black outside. But listen, listen to me. John says, there is none of that in God. There is none of that in God. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There, there are no lurking motives, no manipulation behind the words that he's saying. You never, have to, you never have to guess if what he's saying is actually what he's saying, like we have to do with one another. There is no lurking. There is no manipulation. There is no lies. There is no hiding. In God, there is no darkness because God is light. He is safety and he is warmth and he is health. He is beaming and he is bright and he is clarity and he is perfection. Calvin said that there is nothing in him but what is bright, pure, and unalloyed. God is not like the fairy tale monsters who put on one face to hide their motives and then eat the children. God is not like the Greek gods of legends who are capricious and ever-changing and moody and get all entangled in human affairs. No, God is what God has always been. And John says that God has been unveiled for us in Jesus. And we have fellowship with this Father through the Son. And then John makes this Immediate application for us here in verses 6, 8, and 10. He hits us with three if we says. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. God is light, so his people should be people of light. Verse 8, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here's the second exhortation for us. Walk in the light of godliness. Walk in the light of godliness. Don't nurture life in the dark. Because in God, there is no darkness at all. And so, if that's true of God, it should be true of the people that fellowship with this God. We are to be people of light. We are people of the God of light. Therefore, walk in the light. Paul says it like this in Romans 13, 12. And just listen. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. A light has dawned in Christ, in other words. Dark is the losing team. So then, let us cast off works of darkness and put on armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. He goes on to list egregious, sort of disgusting, even hard-to-name things. And he says, don't, don't be characterized by those things. Be characterized by the light, because God is in the light. Verse 6, he gives us two things that walking in the light does for us, we might say. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another. To be people in the light means to, to join people who are also walking in the light. But it also means that if we introduce darkness into the equation, that disrupts fellowship. Now, I don't understand precisely how this works. But, but something I've seen, I've not been pastoring for very long, but something that I have seen, and it has proven itself to be true time and time and time again. The first thing to go is always fellowship. It's, it's, when darkness begins to creep in in somebody's life, the first thing you notice is they start to disengage. Or they begin to be really resistant to the people of the light coming after them. And, and you know, maybe that's not 100% always true, but for whatever reason, it just seems to always be the case. We tend to think about sin in private terms. But I think the scripture helps us to see that it doesn't quite work like that. Nurturing a life of darkness inhibits us from having fellowship. It's like when the dark begins to take root in our lives, we have an immune response to the light and especially people who want to shed light on us. And we, we stiff arm and we want distance because we, we recognize that the light has an effect on the dark. Sin is never private. And in a way, it's always going to have an effect horizontally. And so fellowship is disrupted when we introduce darkness. It's like if we, if we want fellowship, we, we walk in the light together. But John also says that light has a purifying or a cleansing effect. Sunlight is the best disinfected kind of thing. He says, as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. It's like as we walk in the light, the light shines on the dark places in our hearts, and it, and it gets rid of the fungus and the malevolence and the darkness that wants to grow there. John wants to see his readers grow in love for God, which is obedience, which is conformity to his will, which is being perfected in him. Something that I just cannot overstate that, that, is, that has had a grip on me in recent years is that there is a relief to be found in holiness. There, there is life to be found in the light. I think if you've been around long enough to taste your own darkness, you actually know what, what, a, what an incredible offer this is, to be, to be offered a life in the light with Jesus. There is joy in worshiping God and joy in becoming like the one that we worship. I like to think it's a gift of grace that God has grown in me a distaste for my own darkness. Now, that also, that also pairs with a greater sense of my own darkness, and John's going to speak to that in just a second. But friends, part of the joy 
what's being offered us in salvation is the joy of being freed from your own heart and your own sin to learn the ways of godliness and Christlikeness. That is a relief for me. And that is something that I find to be extremely compelling. That Jesus came to die for my sins and to teach me to walk in godliness. Maybe you hear that and you think, man, that is really compelling. But it's also kind of deflating because verses 8 and 9, we have sin. But look here, chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Listen. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Light is relief, but actually, light can also be kind of scary. Light is exposing Calvin again says that light makes all things manifest by brightness. And that's a good thing when it's bear caves, right? It's a good thing when we can illuminate the dark of the bear caves. But when it's your heart, when it is the cave of your own sin, when the light renders everything exposed there, it's actually kind of horrifying. It's like if you've ever been in those dressing room mirrors that have perfect clarity and there's light from every angle and you are unflinchingly exposed to the reality of what you are, right? The light can be scary. And listen, the enemy wants you to think that the light is scary. The enemy wants you to be afraid of the light. He wants you to be in the dark. And he wants your sin to darken and fester. And he wants you to feel alone. And he wants you to be cut off from everybody else, especially the God of light. The dark tells us that the dark is the answer. But John tenderly Old man, Pastor John, the apostle, tenderly says, little children don't sin, but when you sin, enter the light of Christ. Our third exhortation is that we should walk in the light of confession. Confession, excuse me, not confection, that would be sugar. Confession. If anyone does sin, which he's established, is all of us, is you, is me. If anyone does sin, he says, in Christ, we have an advocate. Is anybody familiar with the silver chair, the, I think, sixth book, fifth book in the Chronicles of Narnia? There's this fantastic scene in the silver chair. If you're not familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, it's about these children who are swept away into this otherworldly place, and they encounter Aslan, who is this, uh, uh, Lewis calls it a, a kind of a supposal. It's, a, it's kind of a, what would it be like if, if, if Christ kind of appeared to these fantasy worlds? Aslan is this big, good, but not safe lion who, at the same time, you want to run from him for fear of being gobbled up, but you also want to bury your face in his mane. At the beginning of the book, The Silver Chair, a little girl, for the first time, is swept into the land of Narnia. And she's on this kind of long journey with a boy named Eustace, and they get separated, and Jill finds herself just absolutely dying of thirst. She's, she's, she's made her way into this fantasy land, and she's wandering and kind of groping through the dark, and she's like, golly, I would really enjoy a drink of water. And then guess what she happens upon? A river of beautiful, clear, tinkling water, just, just calling for her. It is the answer to her thirst, but as she makes her way to the river, what does she see standing at the foot of a river? A lion. Now, at this point in the story, we're told that Jill has some awareness about Aslan, but she's never met Aslan. And I, 
I've seen lions in the zoo, and that's as close as I want to get to them, right? She makes her way to this river, and she realizes, I'm thirsty, and i got to get something to drink. But there is a lion that is couched right here, ready to pounce, ready to gobble up anybody who goes to the river. And she starts to make her way to the water, and she says, you know what? I think I'm going to go find another river. And the lion says, i got bad news for you. There are no other rivers. And so Jill says, there's no other rivers. What am I going to do? There's this lion here who was fierce and who was big and who was dangerous, who was standing at this river. I cannot go to this river because if I do, how do I know that you're not going to gobble me up? And the lion says, well, I have gobbled up nations and kings and princes and little girls and little boys. She says, I'm going to go to another place to get a drink. And he says, there are no other rivers. You either come to me or you die of thirst. Brilliantly, Jill makes her way to the lion, makes her way to the river. She gets a a drink of the cool water, and it says that her thirst has been quenched unlike anything she has ever experienced. And the good news is, the lion doesn't gobble her up. And and all I could think about when I was reading this passage of 1 John is that exact story in the silver chair. Because the the darkness in us, it, it sees the lion who is Christ and says, you can gobble me up. In fact, I am deserving of being gobbled up by you. I'm I'm deserving of justice, and I'm deserving of condemnation. And and how do I know that if I go to you in confession that you aren't going to to wipe me out and gobble me up? And the, the answer is, the reason that we know is because John tells us that in Christ, we have an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins, which means, if I can say it this way, he was gobbled up on the cross for us. And that we can go to him with confidence, knowing that he is merciful to those who seek mercy from his hand. Though we are deserving of all of the condemnation, of all of the justice. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, and and we are deserving of his judgment. But by grace, through faith, and his mercy, we're saved, we're spared, and we we are offered the water of life. So friends, let us walk in the light of confession. John writes these things so that we will walk in godliness But when we don't, let us walk in the light of confession, making our sin known to the lion who is strong enough to defeat it. The light is scary, but Christ shows us mercy. The glory of the God-man is that he embraces our humanness to die for us. He takes on flesh so that his flesh could be broken for your flesh, for my flesh, so that we can enjoy fellowship with the Father forever. And this is not based on anything we have done or anything we could do. This is not based on any magic words we could say. This is, on, this is a, a free gift of grace that is to be received through faith and through faith alone. This is the glory of the Christmas message and the hope of the church. This is the gospel. Now, periodically, we take the Lord's Supper together. And in the Lord's Supper, what we're reminded of is that the God-man Jesus is broken for us. We like to say as we take the supper that we look in three directions. We look backwards to what Christ did in his first coming. We look outwards to the brothers and sisters with whom we share this meal. And we look forwards to when Christ is going to come again and he's going to make all sad things untrue. In the bread, we're reminded of Jesus' breaking, his body being pulled apart. We're reminded in the juice of Jesus' blood that was poured out for us on the cross. And as we take the supper, we take it as those who are thirsty and needy, but who trust in the mercy of our King. In just a second, I'm going I'm to pray for us, and then I'm going to provide some instruction. The way this will work uh, is uh, essentially you, you guys will all come down um, 
the, uh, come in the outside or the middle? Come in the outside, uh, or Zach will be here, and Aaron will be here ready to distribute the elements. You'll take the elements, and you'll make your way back to your seats, and then we'll take of the elements together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray because of Christ, because of what he has done for us and because of his grace to be our advocate. But we also pray because we know that you love us, that you were the one who sent Christ to be our advocate. And we don't need to have hard thoughts of you, Father. You are a Father of love, of light and love, whose light and love is made clear in Jesus. And so when we, when we see Jesus and we see Jesus' heart for us, we see you and your heart for us. Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone who is in our midst who is living in darkness now. Maybe they, maybe they profess faith, maybe they don't profess faith. Maybe they're a covenant member of Ridgewood. Maybe they have been since the beginning. Maybe they're not. Would you shine the light of your spirit in their heart and in their life? And would you, would you bring confession? And would you make us godly? Would you, would you make us a godly people by your grace? Would you work out your godliness in us? Would you teach us what it means to be people who walk in the light as you walk in the light, who delight in your commands that are not burdensome, but but, but commands that are a joy. Would you teach us to love what you love and hate what you hate, God? And Lord Jesus, as we take these elements and as we're reminded of, of, your, of your body that was broken for us, would we find ourselves renewed in our commitment to you with a renewed gratitude to follow you with more vigor and with more passion and with more with more humility at the mercy and grace that you've shown to us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your love for us, and we pray that you would make us like you. We pray this in your name. Amen.